following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. Premillennialism honors and celebrates and anticipates what I'm going to call the magnificent mystery of the provision of God. The magnificent mystery of the provision of God. And you know, I was just reading an article uh, 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 yesterday, actually, by uh, a very important theologian by the name of Don Carson, who said that the thinking uh, evangelicals have spent too little time trying to uh, struggling with the issue of how Jesus can be at once the carefully anticipated, carefully prophesied or foretold Messiah, and yet there be such mystery about his person and his work. And Paul talks much about this mystery. Well, how can it be? Well, I think it has to do with several things, but one of them is the fact that that which is provided in Jesus is more than given, even given the careful foretellings, prophecies of the Old Testament. It's more than we could have imagined. And God has provided, and I'm thinking of this primarily under the, the, the biblical contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now let's make sure we're all on the same page here. Uh, you have 39 books in your Bible you call the Old Testament. The, uh, another word for testament is covenant. And that's a man-made title, that is, we call it that. But in fact, those books more or less describe what life was like under the old covenant. By the way, you have 27 books that you refer to as the New Testament. That's God's manual as to how to live under this marvelous new covenant. We too little, I keep telling people, we too little appreciate, uh, consciously appreciate the fact that we are beneficiaries of a new covenant. And that new covenant is uh, first spoken of in the Old Testament. But the point is, and, and, and let's just make sure, there's only one covenant. And by the way, that term old covenant is not mammy. That's, that we find that in the Bible. Uh, that covenant, the one covenant in all of Scripture, which was given with the intent that it would wax old, a covenant which was only anticipatory and preparatory, is in fact that covenant which was made at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant. It's what Paul often refers to as the law. Now, interestingly enough, time out, I don't have time for this, but the Old Covenant did not prevail through most of the period covered in our Old Testament. That is, uh, by the most recent date, in other words, the most recent possible dating for creation is about 4000 BC. Is that not right, for creation? I believe that, by the way. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young earther of the you know, maximum type. But uh, the fact is that Moses didn't come along until about 1400. The Old Covenant was made in 1446, right, at the, at, uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so the fact is that through most of Old Testament history, some 2,600 years or so, uh, there was the, the, 2,600 years of the Old Testament history. Now it's all covered in uh, the book of Genesis, but 2,600 years uh, transpired before that covenant was made. 
but rather late in what we regard as Old Testament history, in other words, the period of mankind, the period of human history, which is recorded in the books Genesis to, Mal uh, Genesis to Nehemiah, if you don't mind. Uh, that's the narrative. So rather late in that narrative comes Moses, and for about a thousand years you have this covenant, which we know of as the law. But the remarkable thing, and that old covenant was designed to wax old. Uh, you know, I, I asked a, a, a theologian one time, friend, but he, he's a student of the Old Testament, and I, I asked him, and I, his answer was so insightful to me, I said, when do you think the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, began to grow old? And his answer was, at Mount Sinai. And I think that's exactly right. It was designed to make you hungry for something else. There was so much about it that was so blessed, but there was so much about it that screamed, there has to be more. That's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. But I leave that alone. The point is, you have this old covenant. And you know, folks, we live on this side of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb. We live on this side of the book of Hebrews. And, 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 and there is much in that body of literature that we cherish as the new covenant literature, the New Testament which reminds us that what we have in this age, on this side of the finished work of Jesus Christ, is so much better. And I think out of that sometimes comes a quiet and I think ignoble and misinformed sort of contempt for what God did in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Look, you know what, that, you know what the Old Covenant was all about? It was, a, it, was a, it was a... God got Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai and there he offered them a covenant by which he would become their king. And he would move in and give them a law which would render their culture so noble and so virtuous and so equitable that all the nations of the earth would stagger as they considered this marvelous law system. And then he would prevail and, and, and defeat their enemies and give them leadership and so on. Can you imagine... Anything more blessed than to have Yahweh as your king. That's exactly, do you understand that? That's exactly what happened. And they consented to that, to that uh, uh, covenant relationship. In Exodus 24, and, and Moses sprinkled the blood and the covenant was ratified. And what happened after that? Immediately, Moses was called up into the mountain. And for 80 days, punctuated in the middle by a brief uh, adventure down at the foot of the mountain again, but... For 80 days, Moses was given instruction as to how to build a tabernacle. And that tabernacle is nothing more nor less than a throne room. That's where Yahweh, King Yahweh, will dwell in the inner chamber where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's a throne. And what happens in Exodus chapter 40, the Bible says that Moses finished the work. He came down and the people gave offerings and, they, and God uh, enabled two men named Hophni and... Uh, not Hophni and... Uh, uh, Aholiab and Bezalel. Remember those two guys? Some of my heroes. And uh, Aholiab and Bezalel. And uh, he gave them the, uh, the, the capacity to work in wood and stone and brass and so on because they had to, they, 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 I would say, they were real good at building bricks. After that, they didn't know much of anything. They'd been 400 years in Egypt. But, but now they, 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 they craft this marvelous, beautiful, carefully designed, designed by God to reflect the heavenly tabernacle. They, 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 they craft this tabernacle, and what happens? Exodus chapter 40, the Bible says, Moses finished the work, and the glory cloud lifted up off the Mount, of, uh, the, uh, the, the Mount Sinai, and, and God, King Yahweh, took his throne. That's the enthronement of King Yahweh. And so for those years, actually from 1446 until 592, God was really, functionally, 
physically present in the midst of the nation of Israel and, and, and protected and led them and rebuked and punished them as their king. He put himself on display in that regard. By the way, two things about that. Number one, one of the insights that consistent literalism brings to a reading of the, of, of the Bible, this is kind of heavy and it's a bit of an aside, but the acknowledgement that God in the Old Testament had a purpose for the nation of Israel and he fulfilled that purpose, this is the big thing, irrespective of how many individual Israelites were personal believers. God made a relationship with that people, that nation, and he determined that he, because you see, this is where I'm taking you all in all, human history is about more than just getting people saved. It's about God putting himself on display to the world. And he raised up a people, and he longed for them individually to come to faith, and, and, and many, many did, and many Gentiles came to faith and identified with that people because of it. But you know what? God had set before Israel this working relationship, Deuteronomy 11, 26, and 28, I set before you as a people now. I set before you a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey and a curse if you disobey. And the fact is, Paul has this in mind when he says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. God was going to put himself on display through that people. And when that people obeyed, he would so marvelously, marvelously bless and so on. I mentioned to you before that I spent a lot of time over the last couple months just uh, trying to immerse myself rather deliberately in the period of the kings. And you know, who was the most wicked king of all the kings in the north? Can you tell me in, the, in, in, in Israel? It was Ahab. He, he, not o- he, he, he not only, the Bible says, thought it a small thing to do the sins of Jeroboam, his father, but, or it wasn't his physical father, but who had reigned before him, who had taught Israel to do all those wickednesses. But he married Jezebel. The fascinating thing, you have that whole story, and I love the story, the Elijah and Elisha confrontation and so on. You know, it's very important to understand that Jeroboam did wickedly because he violated the second commandment. And he made images of, of Yahweh. But uh, Ahab took it a step further. Well, Jezebel took it a step further. And she determined to violate high-handedly the first commandment and to root out Yahweh worship. And God raised up these two prophets, uh, Elijah and then Elisha, to follow him, to, to rescue Yahwism. And uh, how close did she get? Do you remember? That is, how close did she get to wiping it out? 7,000. Remember, Elijah thought he and he alone, but no, there were, that's not very many. Now, I say all that just to make the point. It's so fascinating that after all of the rebuking and, and, and so on, Eli, uh, Ahab repented, and God withdrew his hand of punishment to Ahab. Who was the most wicked, wicked king in the south? It was Manasseh. Remember, the son of Hezekiah, the grandfather of Josiah. But Manasseh, when he was carried off to Assyria, repented. And God forgave him. The point is, all throughout those books, you have this, 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 this remarkable drumbeat of, I set before you a blessing. And if you obey, I'll, I'll, I'll bless you. But a curse, and if you curse. So my point is, in the Old Testament, God formed this old covenant, this Mosaic covenant. And by means of that, by, uh, 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 the essence of that covenant is that he became the king of Israel. And he, 
and he reigned in Israel for all of that time. Now they, they sinned awfully. And, and God, as I said, had made them a covenant. I said before you, a blessing and a curse. And he spelled out the blessings. And then he spells out in the book of Deuteronomy the curses. And the greatest of the curses, the final curse, if you persist in your disobedience, will be that I will raise up a Gentile nation to destroy you, to carry you off. And uh, I would say, is God a covenant-keeping God? You bet. Did Israel persist in her wickedness? You bet. And so God raised up a series of Gentile kingdoms. And before the first of those, Babylon... Uh, came and destroyed Israel, uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, all 12 tribes are represented there. But before that happened, King Yahweh departed. And so you have that horribly melancholy scene in Ezekiel 11 where the glory cloud lifts up and, and with heavy heart, remember in Ezekiel 8, the glory cloud lifts up from over the temple. And then in Ezekiel 10, it's, it, the glory cloud tarries for a time over the eastern gate of the temple. And then in Ezekiel 11... The glory cloud hovered for a period over the mountain which is on the east of the city. What's the name of that mountain? That's the Mount of Olives. Two things about that real quickly. Interestingly enough, September 18th, what is today, the 12th? No, the 13th. 13th. So five days from now will be the 2600th anniversary of the day when the glory cloud departed. Ezekiel dates his, his prophecies. And if you do the arithmetic, or let's say it this way, if I've done my arithmetic correctly, uh, that happened in 592. We know that for sure. September 18th, our September 18th, 592. And uh, so I think it'll be the 2600th anniversary of that day when the glory cloud, with heavy heart, tarried for a time on the mountain which is on the east of the city. By the way, one other thing, and doesn't speak to you. Well, maybe it does. The fact is that on Tuesday of the Passion Week, as Jesus leaves the city for the last time under his own power, he too, Matthew 23, tarries on the mountain which is on the east of the city, on the Mount of Olives, and he weeps over the city. In Ezekiel 11, it's King Yahweh who has been rejected. In Matthew 23, it's King Jesus who has been rejected. It's a very, very delibor deliberate pattern. But uh, bless God, it's not the last time that Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives. Amen and amen. But at any rate, the point is that in the Old Testament, I've lost my way, the magnificent mystery of God's provision, it's clear that Israel came to believe, mistakenly I believe, that this was the greatest expression of God's goodness they could ever know. For God... King Yahweh to live in their midst. Do you know what it is? To, can you imagine you build a tabernacle temple and the glory cloud dwells there and you have the God of the universe who has formed this relationship with this people such as he, he, he formed with no other people on the face of the earth and now in the person of the glory cloud his covenant presence dwells in our midst. But you see, late in the days of the old covenant we were taught to, to, to anticipate a new covenant. And I, I haven't got time to develop it, but let me just say this. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 31, where you have the first explicit expression of a new covenant, a covenant which is not like the covenant which I made with your fathers at Mount Sinai, God says. And I believe that you put together the two most important, the new covenant or a coming covenant in Ezekiel, it's called a covenant of peace, shalom, 
which is such a huge word in the Old Testament to have peace with God. And there's this covenant which will be a new covenant, not like the old, and it will be a covenant which will provide peace between you and God. And uh, that covenant, of course, is that which was brought by Jesus Christ. And I think when you wash it all away, you, there are two basic, you know, again, I may have said this to you before, but I think it's so terribly important. I think, I think we, as New Covenant believers, ought to learn to just wallow in the New Covenant. That ought to be so precious and so real and so concrete to us that we have this New Covenant. And this New Covenant can be reduced, it seems to me, to two primary blessings. The first one, and it's explicit in, in Jeremiah, and Hebrews picks up on it in Hebrews chapter 10. Well, maybe we ought to go to Hebrews chapter 10. Just real quickly, the fact is, that in Jeremiah, as Jeremiah anticipates by the word, by, by, by the, as the prophet of God, this new covenant relationship, he says that one of the blessings of it is that by reason of the new covenant, your sins and your iniquities, I will remember no more. And Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 10, and he makes this deliberate contrast. Verse 11, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never fully, finally, that's the idea. Did, was there atonement in the sacrifice of the Old Testament? Yes. Leviticus 17, 11, the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. I always say, I think, you know, what John 3, 16 is, you, Leviticus 17, 11, would have been the Old Testament saint. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you in the altar to make an atonement for your soul. The blood shall make an atonement for your soul. The blood of what? The blood of that lamb, that animal, that, that whatever it is you bring. But could it finally, did you ever offer your last sacrifice? It's often been said, and I think it's validated by this verse right here in verse 11, that they're in, in Hebrews 10, that they're, they're with all of the careful arrangement and, and description uh, of, for the, that was provided to Moses up in the mountain, every article of furniture, every dimension, every material, and so on was carefully described. But one thing that's re rather remarkably missing, you probably know this, is any sort of bench or chair. And there seems to have been absolutely no provision for the priest to ever sit down. I think that's what it means when it says every priest stands ministering. Because if he were to sit down, it would give the illusion that his work was done, and his work was never done. And so every priest minister stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? See it there? He sat down. It was done. At the right hand of God, from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, by one offering he has perfected forever those who are yet being sanctified. And, this is, and, he, and, and it's at this point that the author of Hebrews, uh, Paul's mind, Luke's hand, but that's another thing. But at any rate, verse 15, the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I'll make with them. After those days, I will put my law in their hearts and their minds I will write them. But then he says, then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Folks, this is our birthright. We've never known anything else. We can only go to the pages of the Old Testament to find a point of contrast. Do it. Understand the remarkable blessedness of one offering that finally takes care of sin. It's unimaginable. This is what I mean by the majestic mystery of this new covenant relationship whereby in the Old Testament, 
you could, you could have the happy confidence that your sins were actually taken care of by reason of the medical sacrifices that were provided you. But you could never have the happy confidence that it was taken care of once for all. It was all. I think this is one of the points at which the old covenant made you hungry for something more. But now this one has come. And, and, and there is so much about his person which is ultimately mysterious. How is it that he can be at once both God and man? You know, by the way, there's a lot of jabber and talk today among evangelical theologians about how God's, the word of God is so mysterious and we can't know for sure what it means. And it's written in some, side of code, some kind of code language and this is supposed to, we're supposed to celebrate under this, uh, this under the heading of mystery. Look, mystery in the Bible, I've said this before, is never a function of ambiguity, it's a function of clarity. What is it about the person of Jesus which is mysterious? It's that the Bible is so absolutely explicit that he is God, very God. And he's man, very man. The only time you encounter mystery in the Bible where it takes you where your mind can't fully go and you have to simply drop to your knees and confess that God's God and I'm not, I'm going to trust his word, is when the Bible is so clear. That makes sense to you? Yeah. And the fact is there is so much about the person of Jesus, which is ultimately mysterious, but it's by reason of that mystery, by reason of the fact that this eternal second person of a triune Godhead has taken upon himself genuine, real human flesh and become our kinsman in order that he might become our redeemer. And therefore, he's able to offer himself up in a way that is, is, is uh, 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 his death becomes our death, and his death is sufficient to, as we believe, his death becomes our death, and his death is sufficient to, to, to satisfy the holiness of an infinitely holy God, and therefore, sins are once and for all forgiven. Now, I want to go back. Uh, oh, well, let me go one more step first, and I'll make my point. And that is... I said to you, I think there are two basic bless, blessings of the new covenant vis-a-vis -vis the old covenant. The first one is sins once and for all forgiven. And the second one is this new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit by which we become the temple of God. And, and, and we have this, this new, he writes the law on our heart and he, he remakes us in such a way that, that, that there is a longing for righteousness. I think this is what was anticipated in Genesis chapter 3. When God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, that is, human beings. And uh, I think I had, a, I had a theology prof, and he was absolutely convinced that all that meant was that uh, women were forever going to be afraid of snakes. I think there's something more going on there than uh, women are going to be afraid of snakes. Uh, the point is that only a work of regeneration can cause you to cherish that which you in the flesh despise and to despise that which you in the flesh cherish. And God promised to do that, and in the new covenant he has done it fully, and now we have this new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. And again, there is much that might be said about that, about this New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit, but I'm convinced, and I think I've said this to you before, but I'm going to say it real quickly, I'm convinced that if you wash it all away, if you reduce it as far as it can be reduced, the contrast between the relationship, the experience of the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint, what we have on this side of the cross, what is ours because 
of this new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, vis-a-vis what the Old Testament's saying, godly, mature, uh, uh, hungry for a right relationship with God, and so on. What, what's the contrast between his experience and ours? And I think you can re- reduce it to one word, and that's the word intimacy. You and I have an intimacy with the Father that the Old Testament saint would have been scandalized to hear you talk about. Honest to goodness, I can't find any place in the Old Testament where, it may be there, help me out, but I've looked, where any individual believer refers to God as Father. There are two places where God refers to the nation of Israel as his son, and in both places, it's, it's, it's Hosea and, and, and uh, 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 just lost it, and Exodus. And he's, he's talking about how he's going to protect him and so on. But in the Old Testament, men knew God as Savior, as Lord and Sovereign, as King, as the object of their worship and their adoration. I don't believe that they knew him as Father. I think when Jesus, anticipating this new covenant relationship, was asked how to pray, and he said, you begin by saying, our Father. I think there were jaws dropping. I really do. That is, that is remarkably new covenant in, uh, privilege. Does that make sense to you? This is the Abba principle. The spirit of adoption has been sent into our hearts by which we cry. You know, it's amazing. The Old Testament saint, I think, would have been offended to hear you talk about God as your Father. But by the new covenant Because of the new covenant relationship, you know him not only as father, but as papa, Abba. That is staggering. Now I make my point. You have to understand that the primary competing ideology uh, to literalism, premillennialism, basically argues that all of human history, of sacred history, must be understood in terms of the, one, the unfolding of the one covenant of redemption. It's a, re, it's a covenant which is quite frankly imagined. I think there may be some theological merit to, to the idea, but it's never revealed in Scripture, and yet that becomes the, 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 the one, the, the center. This, this is what Ryrie had in mind when he said, as I said to you this morning, that, that the, one of the glories of premillennialism is that it, it, it has a doxological frame of reference rather than a soteriological because under covenant theology slash amillennialism all of human history has to be is, is to be understood supposedly as the unfolding of the one covenant of redemption and so human history becomes all about the redemption of 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 a portion of mankind well praise god for that but the fact is that I, and this is Ryrie's point that human history is about more than men getting saved. It is about God being glorified. But my point is, in the interest of that proposition, which I think is an erroneous proposition. What proposition? The proposition that all human history has to be understood as the unfolding of the one covenant of redemption. And that's why they want everything to be flat, everything to be continuous. That's why if you're going to have circumcision in the Old Testament, you ought to have infant baptism in the New Testament. If you're going to have Israel as the people of God, then the church must be the new Israel because everything's about this. And in so doing, they flatten out the covenants. And one of the most staggering misunderstandings of Scripture, they will insist 
that when the Bible in Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant and when in fact the book of Hebrews, the whole book is, is about unfolding the dynamics of that new covenant, they say, well, it's not entirely new, it's renewed. It's the old covenant made new. No, it's not the old covenant made new. It is in fact a covenant that the Old Testament saint, as godly as he might have been and given all his understanding that God provided, never could have imagined. Never could have imagined. And we possess it. It's ours by the blood of Christ. And therefore, the, this, that's what I mean when I, when, I, when I talk about the magnificent mystery of what God has provided for us, as good and as blessed as it was that in the Old Testament, King Yahweh took up his office in the very midst of Israel and governed them. And as, as, as melancholy as it must have seemed that day when, when, when Yahweh departed, the fact is that by reason of the wickedness of, of, that, of, of that nation, God has provided something unimaginably more blessed. This is Romans 9 to 11. And you and I have this, and, and, and it seems to me that only, well, not seems to me, I think it's absolutely undeniable un, un, that only a premillennial reading of the scriptures, which renders, which, which is happy to acknowledge the, 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 what, what are sometimes regarded as the discontinuity. Did God work for a time with Israel and then set Israel aside and in a mysterious way that wasn't anticipated raise up this body called the church? Amen and amen, that's what the Bible says. But in, in so doing, he provided a, a covenant relationship which the Old Testament saint never could have imagined. So I finished my thought. I think only the premillennial reading of scripture enables you to rejoice with full throat over this remarkable, blessed relationship, this new covenant, which is not like the covenant which God made, which is discontinuous, if you don't mind to use the theological terminology, which God has provided. Well, quickly, a third. So I'm saying the ineffable integrity of the person of God. I think premillennialism honors it and celebrates it. Uh, God doesn't break his word. The the magnificent mystery of the provision of God, that in fact this new covenant stands apart and is a blessedness that we ought to learn to appreciate much more deeply than perhaps we do. But thirdly, for, for sake of an outline, I'm going to call it the extraordinary ex exhibition of the perfections of God. And I'm talking about now the millennium itself. Because, and, 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 I, and I, I, I choose the words carefully, by extraordinary I mean something which is different than the ordinary. There is coming to this earth a stage of human history during which, in an extraordinary way, God will exhibit his character and his perfections. Does that make sense to you? That's what I'm saying, this marvelous kingdom hope. And I'll come back to this in just a moment. But, but um, uh, all throughout human history, God has put himself on display. And in this stage and that, there were various means. And of course, Hebrews rejoices over this, that uh, though God had spoken in various ages and various means through the prophets of the past in these last days, he's spoken unto us by his son. But I believe that there is coming this millennial kingdom, which is, by the way, sort of at the heart, obviously, of the eschatological argument, because we call ourselves pre Millennialists. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that we believe that there is a literal thousand-year reign to come at the end of human history. What do we mean by pre? That's the millennial part. What do we mean by pre? Well, that simply means that it can't happen until Jesus comes and makes it happen. So he's got to come and provide it. That's in contrast to post-millennialism, which was sort of a horribly Pollyannish 
uh, child of the, uh, of the Enlightenment spirit that, uh, that hoped that uh, mankind could actually provide. We would actually Christianize the world, and then Jesus would realize it was so noble that he would come and be part of it. So post-millennialists had us, honest to goodness, had us producing a kingdom on earth, and then Jesus would join it. He would come after it already got here. Post, the post has to do when Jesus becomes part of it. And in response to that, millenarians, those who had already believed in an end-time king, began to, to be phrased pre-millennialists. So it only happens when Jesus comes and makes it happen. Now, the, the, the debate between amillennial and premillennial pretty much has to do with the millennium, right? Is, and amillennial says it's not going to happen at all, and premillennial says it is going to happen, and Jesus is going to make it happen. Well, um, one of the... One of the most, I, I think one of the most important dynamics and, 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 and virtues of the premillennial uh, worldview is that it honors the reality that human history is going somewhere, that it's not running amok. You see, amillennialism teaches a doctrine called the general resurrection. And what they mean by that, as I said this morning, amillennials don't have prophecy conferences because they don't believe in an end-time drama. All of the books to which we would go and the passage to which we would go to discern that end-time drama, they would say, are happening right now or have happened. And so therefore, they believe that history goes on until finally God blows a cosmic whistle and the saved go to heaven and the lost go to hell. And out there, in heaven, in some yonder place, uh, God, we, we, we celebrate God's glory and so on, but it doesn't happen on this earth. As I say, I think it's an important thing that God was looking Satan square in the eyes when he said, I'm going to win this. I'm going to crush your head. Now, having said it, there, there are so many ways in which the, uh, the doctrine of an end-time millennial kingdom uh, is, is the God's perfections will be displayed. But there's one I want to focus. You know, it, it's curious all throughout the scriptures, you have the hope of a messianic kingdom. In the Old Testament, have you ever thought about this? In the Old Testament, when Messiah comes and establishes a kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom. And yet, when we get to Revelation 20, three chapters from the end of the Bible, we are told that there will be a thousand-year kingdom. And how, how do we reconcile that? In the Old Testament, it's an eternal kingdom, and yet it's going to be a thousand-year kingdom. Well, very simply, what you need to understand, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, is that... The millennial kingdom is the first stage of the eternal kingdom. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? Study the kingdom. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 24, in describing the resurrections, Paul says, then comes the end when the kingdom is handed up to the Father. So is the Messiah's kingdom established when he comes in Revelation 19? Yes, it is. Is that kingdom a, a, an eternal kingdom, as Daniel says? Yes, it is. But is there a, an initial kingdom? thousand-year period, yes. And the, the unique thing about that thousand-year period is that even though Satan is bound, nonetheless, there will be people born into that kingdom. Now, I haven't got time to develop this. I'm late, but, but you have the sheep and the goats, and there are people who are saved during the tribulation, and they're, regard, they, they, and they're counted as sheep, and they're allowed to go into the kingdom in mortal bodies. They will bear children, and those children will, will be born as sons of Adam, and they will have to grow up and, and come to faith, and many of them will not. And in Revelation 20, and I've been gripped of late by the little phrase in Revelation 20 where it says that Satan will be loosed for a little Season. Now, here's my point. 
I believe that there is an all-important forensic function to the millennial kingdom. Why is it that having revealed that there's an eternal kingdom, he informs us there's going to be this stage, this initial stage? And I think it comes down to this. I think there are many other uh, reasons, but, but, it's, it, but, but you know what? It's impossible to really appreciate the grace and goodness of God unless it's measured against the wickedness and fallenness and rebellion of men. Now think about it. Are we not told again and again in our own culture that, that, that man's problems are all external to himself, that men are basically good, that, that if it weren't for the injustice and the inequity and the poverty and the hunger and so on, the men would be sweet and kind and so on? Think about it, folks. For a thousand years... There is a kingdom of plenty and peace and equity and justice, and that kingdom is provided by one man, King Jesus, who rules in Israel. But at the end of that thousand years, Satan is loose for a little season, and it takes him just that much time to find a vast army of rebels who want to overthrow that king. Could there be a more thorough and undeniable demonstration of the fallenness of man's heart that his, his problem is not, is not confusion, it is high-handed rebellion. And I think that God has, has, has revealed this to us in order that we might understand that, that well, I'm going to say it again, in order that we might come to, that somehow <laughs> we might begin to understand the infinite goodness of God against, that's who we are. Those are the sons of Adam, and, and, and were it not for the work of regeneration, that would be us. But I think, does that make sense to you? I think God is in the business of closing every mouth. And there will be nobody who stands at judgment and says, oh, God, if you'd have been a little, care, a little more kind, if you'd have been a little, give me a little more time. And the great demonstration of that, I believe, is the millennial kingdom. Now, there's so much more that goes on. But let me just, one other point. With this, I'm just going to say it, and, and, and with this, I'm done. And it kind of wraps it up. So the ineffable, I think premillennialists, premillennialism honors and celebrates the ineffable integrity of the person of God, that he keeps his word. The majestic mystery of the, of the provision of God, that, that God has provided uh, in Jesus this new covenant relationship, which is not like the old covenant. And I think it celebrates the, the, the uh, uh, what did I say, the... Uh, uh, extraordinary exhibition of the perfections of God during that thousand-year period. But one other thing, and that is that premillennialism celebrates the doxological design of the plan of God. And I, I'm just going to draw it together. Folks, uh, there is coming a kingdom in which, you know, let me say it this way, and with this I'm done. <laughs> I think that Christians are altogether too much fixated on heaven. And, and uh, I've said to you before, I, I, heaven's a, a glorious thought. And it certainly, certainly beats all of the alternatives. But uh, the problem is that we die, I die, and I go to heaven... And I get to walk the streets of gold and to see my Savior and to be reunited with loved ones and so on. But the fact is, this world still lies in the lap of the evil one. And I believe that the reason, as a matter of fact, we don't have to, con we don't have to wonder why it is that Jesus taught us to pray. As soon as you have 
have acknowledged the holiness of God's name, that which ought to erupt out, erupt out of your soul spirit is, thy kingdom come. Why? Because only when his kingdom comes will God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this world, amillennialism, looks at this world and says, guess what, the kingdom's here. This is as good as it gets. I look at this world and I say, this world is out of joint. Everything about it, that which is sacred and noble is vilified and despised, and that which is corrupt and, 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 and disgusting is honored and celebrated and sought after. And I hunger for the day when that will be set right, when, when, when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as Habakkuk says, will cover the earth as water covers the sea, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Christ to the glory of God the Father. God's design in human history is about more than just getting people saved. It is about putting himself on display, and he will do that magisterially in that kingdom which is yet to come.